So first, if we are a child of God, then we are also an heir of God. Now, of course, the analogy is imperfect. Normally, an heir receives their inheritance when a parent or other benefactor dies. In the present case, we will receive this inheritance in all its fullness after we die. But what is this inheritance? 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 gives us a clue. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And Hebrews 1, 1-2 says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. This tells us that Jesus is heir of all things. And then in Romans 8, 15 to 17, we read, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if we in fact suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So the Son is heir of all things, and we are co-heirs with him. It is hard to grasp what that fully means. It seems to me, fundamentally, it suggests that the quality of our lives in eternity will be much richer, much more wonderful than we can imagine. And that certainly fits with the idea of our being close to God in eternity. This belief can have practical implications. Some years ago, our former pastor Trevor mentioned in one of his sermons, something that stuck with me, a Christian single mother who had done a remarkable job of raising her three children. They had all done exceptionally well in spite of the very difficult circumstances that their mother faced when she was raising them. When asked how she had done this, she said something like, I saw a new world coming, and I tried to live in continuity with that. The second important aspect of our being adopted as children of God is captured in Galatians 3.28. Quote, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The distinctions between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, 
were very important for Jews at the time of Paul and Jesus. If it was true that these distinctions were not to matter in a Christian community, then that all were to love each other regardless of these distinctions, then clearly Paul would have said this applied also to people who were light or dark-skinned, young or old, disabled or disabled, and so able or disabled, and so on. In fact, you see the picture here. It's a picture of our own community. I googled sort of picture of diverse church community, and I couldn't find anything as diverse as our own. Um, Jesus states it very clearly in John 15. By this shall all people know you are my disciples, if you love one another as I have loved you. And this quality of inclusive love, of course, is extolled in many places throughout, in fact, not just the New Testament, but often in the Old as well. To belong to such a community in our polarized and fragmented world is a great gift. We ourselves at Emmaus are a diverse group of people in many respects. Yet it seems to me we have largely managed to see beyond our differences, to see each other first of all as fellow children of God, fellow disciples of Jesus, and on that basis to form a surprisingly cohesive community. A bit more on that later. <clears throat> Thirdly, if we are children of God, then we are no longer under the law. Galatians 3, 23 to 25. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. What does it mean that we were imprisoned and guarded under the law or that the law was our disciplinarian? Now, mainly Jew Jews at the time considered the instructions in the first five books of the Old Testament, which they called the Torah, as the law. The Ten Commandments appear twice in the Torah and are the foundation of the law. But if you've read those books, you know there were many other rules as well, 613 in total by one count. There was much that was good about the Jewish law, especially in comparison with the rules that other cultures and civilizations lived by at the time. Following the Ten Commandments would have made for an orderly and at least fairly happy society. People were enjoined to love God above all, not money or power or sex, etc. Everyone, men, women, and even slaves, were granted at least one day of complete rest per week. People were not to steal from each other. Children were to honor their parents, and so on. And if we look beyond the Ten Commandments, many of the Jewish rules and regulations had a kindly aspect to them, like not muzzling a threshing ox so the animal could eat some of the grain while it was working, 
We're leaving some of the harvest behind so that foreigners and strangers could gather some food for themselves. In contrast, <clears throat> other people at the time tended to have harsher rules of life, some even including human sacrifice, even the sacrifice of young babies, as was common in the Canaanite civilization. And this we know from archaeological findings too. In that sense, the Jewish law can be seen as a pointer in the right direction. But it did not change people inwardly. It just gave Jewish people better rules to live by than their neighbors. That was a gift, but not nearly as big a gift as God wanted to give us. As we find in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, actually I'll just read 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews 8 quotes and echoes this key passage. So we are no longer under the law. We are free from it. But at the same time, we are meant to obey God and follow the promptings of the Spirit. In John 5:19, we read, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And in Romans 8, 12 to 15, we read, So then, brothers and sisters, we are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put, the deaths of the you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. How can we reconcile the idea that we are no longer under the disciplinarian that the law is, but that we must not do anything on our own, but only what the Father does? That we are obligated by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body? Is this exchanging one form of slavery for another? This is not such a simple question. But at the same time, it is not so difficult to see in general what we are supposed to do. So just a word of warning. My sermon gets a little denser at this point. <clears throat> so when a child is, say, 10 years old, a parent may tell them, now be sure to come back in for supper before 6. A younger child needs to be reminded of things like that. <clears throat> but as a child grows older, if he or she is a good child, <clears throat> pardon me, their parent won't need to give them such specific instructions. A 16-year-old, if all goes well, will have agreed with their parent on when they will come home. They will call their parent if circumstances change so the parent doesn't worry. I know that in real life, 16-year-old teenagers 
who nonetheless end up growing into responsible adults don't always do that. But good children do understand the importance of being considerate of their parents' feelings in that way. The child gradually internalizes adult standards of behavior and lives by them without needing to be reminded of them all the time. So I interpret what Jesus said in John 5.19 as that he had completely internalized God the Father's way of looking at people and situations and of responding to them. So he naturally thought, spoke, and acted in a way consistent with God's nature. Now, what about us? In the Anglican Collect for Peace, we find the striking phrase, whose service, meaning God's service, is perfect freedom, which is a translation of a prayer attributed to Augustine, who died nearly 1,600 years ago. It goes way back. How can serving someone else be the same as being perfectly free? In general, it isn't, obviously. But it is the same when the someone is God. So let me explain. If we value goodness and truth and beauty, as I, as I believe most people, Christian or not, do, then what do we most want? Is it not precisely to live lives that are naturally pleasing to God, lives marked by goodness and truth and beauty at every turn, at every moment? That is what we want. But we see that we can't be that way. We keep failing to love our neighbor as we know we should. We don't work hard enough or we work too hard and neglect other duties. We lack in self-control in all kinds of ways. How can we become the kinds of people we most want to be? By following the path that God has laid for us, a path that is different in its details for everyone, but that necessarily involves common elements, such as forgiving those who hurt us, being truthful, being kind, and so on. In guiding us, God seeks both to work through us for the good of others, and also to work in us for our own good, that we may grow into the likeness of Christ. In order for this inner growth to occur, we need to do what God wants us to do and avoid doing what he does not want us to do. And what we observe over time is that the fruit of the Spirit grow in us, all of them together at least to some degree, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we can see that we have ended up being better for others than we would have been otherwise. Not necessarily very good, but at least better than we would have been. The process is in some ways analogous to learning a new skill. Here I will borrow an analogy from Bishop Robert Barron. I wonder how many of you have heard of Bishop Robert Barron. 
I see some heads nodding, but not everyone, whose podcasts and sermons I encourage you to check out if you are interested in a relation between faith and culture and philosophy. He really is amazing. To be able to express yourself freely in another language, to communicate with ease, you have to work pretty hard to learn the rules of grammar of that language, how its verbs are conjugated, and learn the words and expressions that native speakers use. Or to take another example, as I'm learning from my wife Ruth, to acquire the freedom to be able to make beautiful pieces of pottery, you need to practice throwing, you need to learn how to mix and apply glazes, and so on. It takes time and effort. The same goes for learning a musical instrument, becoming a good photographer, becoming a contributing member of the scientific community in a particular field, and so on. This conception of freedom is often called the freedom for excellence. Freedom from the law as disciplinarian, then, means following the path that God has laid for us and which will lead us gradually towards becoming a well-trained disciple whom God can rely on to do his will in a variety of situations. It is a type of freedom for excellence, where the freedom that is sought is to be the truly good person that God means us to be. And this freedom, as our liturgy says, service of God is indeed perfect freedom. And his freedom is, in fact, of much more central importance to a Christian than the freedom that comes with mastering a new skill, such as speaking a new language or playing a musical instrument, though God may desire for us to acquire such a skill. The freedom for excellence is often contrasted with what philosophers call freedom of indifference, the freedom to wear a red shirt or a blue shirt, the freedom to save money for a trip versus saving it for retirement versus giving more to charity, the freedom to choose how to make one's living. This freedom of indifference has come to acquire over the past 500 years or more a huge importance in our society. No doubt to some extent this has been good. No one would dispute the importance of freedom of speech or freedom of assembly, for example. But more controversially, it has meant promoting such rights as a right for a child to determine their gender identity, or of an ill person to choose the time of their death. And also controversially, it has also meant promoting the rights for individuals and corporations to act in ways that have negative impacts on others, such as the right to ignore public health directives or the right to hoard resources for oneself or to harm the environment. Our rights have come to be emphasized much more than our responsibilities. For a Christian, there surely remains some room for the freedom of indifference. I doubt God cares what we wear beyond whether it is suitable for the circumstances. To wear jeans to a friend's wedding wouldn't be charitable, usually. 
But freedom for excellence exercised in following in a disciplined way the path that God has laid for us must surely take the dominant role in our consciousness. Our time, our energy, as well as our money ought to be deliberately, habitually, and continually laid at our master's feet. Only in trivial matters, such as what color of clothes to wear, do we exercise truly the freedom of indifference. This approach to life reflects, of course, values completely different from the dominant values in our society today. The freedom for excellence as learning to walk in God's ways with all the changes in our lives that this brings is not something that many people around us value. Rather, our society values, for example, sexual license, at least up to a point. Christ values chastity. Our society values accumulating wealth and spending on pleasures. Christ values radical generosity. Our society values the pursuit of success. Christ values the giving of self to others, and so on. It seems to me, I'm almost done. <laughs> it seems to me there are implications for thinking along these lines that affect the way Christians ought to position themselves on many issues that are matters of public debate. This could help promote unity within the larger church. I could say quite a bit more about this, but I'm out of town. <clears throat> so to conclude, I've tried to describe here what comes with being a child of God, the hope for something much better than what we know on earth, the gift of unity in Christ, and the kind of freedom in the service of God that being a child of God entails. Entering into this kind of life is open to all. If you who are listening to this sermon have not already made the active choice to follow Jesus, whether young or old, then I would invite you to consider doing so. Life as a child of God is ultimately much more satisfying than the kind of life this world offers you. If you are new to the faith, then, then I encourage you to stick with it, to persevere. There are countless examples of people who, over the past 2,000 years, have done so through all kinds of circumstances, sometimes very difficult persecutions, and have ended up immensely grateful that they did not give up. And if you are like me, someone who's been on this path for decades, then I hope this sermon will have at least reminded you of all the reasons we have to be thankful for our adoption as children of God and perhaps given you a bit of food for thought. May these words, O oh Lord, have been not too much in error, and may they produce some good in your sight. Amen. <clears throat>